The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. to this very special episode of Talking Space. This is Talking Space episode 217, conveniently for the week of 5-17-2010. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein. Joining me as always is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Uh, pleasure to be here, Sawyer, especially tonight. We've got some really, really, really neat people to talk to today. Indeed we do, and also Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. What was that? Oh, that's a hint about the show. I didn't say that. <laughs> okay. And also joining us tonight from Astronomy FM's Astronomy Out and About, which can be heard Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Astronomy FM. Please welcome Rebecca Setzer. Welcome. Thank you, and thank you for the great introduction. No Hello, problem. Everyone. If you can get any <laughs> listeners for you, why not? Because Talking Space follows your show Tuesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern. And uh, Gina Hurlihy, who's our usual panelist, uh, we're both kind of sort of bedraggled. We just returned from the uh, uh, the STS-132 tweet-up event, and uh, we will have some stories to, to relate to all you folks uh, next week about that. But uh, uh, Gina was a little little bit more bedraggled than I was and could not be here, but uh, she'll be back to uh, share those stories with us next week. Now, tonight we have two very special guests. Our two special guests are some modern-day treasure hunters that know a few things about space rocks. Joining us are Steve Arnold and Jeff Notkin from the Science Channel show Meteorite Men, which has just been signed on for a second season. So, welcome, Steve and Jeff. Well, it was great to meet you and some of the team at Nice. It was, it was really fun after having communicated on Twitter. Well, it was a pleasure to finally meet you as well. And, Steve, I wish I could have met you there, too. Yeah, I was a little disappointed that that uh, there, there were actually quite a few people I missed on Saturday. So, but and, I believe it was worth it. Artist Sunday for that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's the way the cookie crumbles. First question: How did you guys end up meeting each other and get involved with hunting meteorites? I think we can we can blame the internet for the meteorite <laughs> men's career. Back in the mid '90s, Steve and I were both quite active on the internet and uh, in the fairly early days of the public internet and Steve contacted me first he found a profile of mine online that listed meteorites as an interest and he dropped me an email and said are you a collector researcher dealer hunter and I said I'm not sure really A, a bit of each perhaps and he was planning an expedition to the Atacama Desert in Chile that was back in 1996 and uh, invited me to go along with him, even though we hadn't met in person, face-to-face. So the beginning of our long career together was uh, partly due to the Internet, but really got off to start at the airport in Santiago, Chile, where we met face-to-face for the first time in the spring of 97. And there have been many adventures since then. So a great example of the Internet bringing like-minded people together. That's definitely an interesting way to meet. Now... I know one of you is more of a researcher and the other is more of a seller of meteorites. So how does that interaction work when you're deciding what to do with a meteorite that you found? Well, I think for the most part, and each expedition is a little bit different, but usually when we're out hunting, um, what Jeff finds belongs to him and and what I find belongs to me. And sometimes it it does require really a joint effort, and so we kind of agree ahead of time that we'll we'll share what's found. Um, I I personally don't have a collection. 
I have inventory. I have a few items that I'm not probably wanting to sell, but for the most part, what I buy is, or what I acquire, uh, usually by finding, is is up for sale. And Jeff, on the other hand, I think at heart is a collector, and um, he doesn't have a problem buying and selling other people's meteorites, but the ones he finds, he, he's usually pretty fond of, and so he tends to, to keep them in his private collection. So more times than not, it's kind of funny, Jeff ends up being um, one of my better customers, because we'll find something or I'll find something and he buy and, and, um, he kind of, uh, by proxy takes possession of it. And so, um, a lot of the times I'll end up selling something I find. And, and it's kind of, it's, it's actually the best of both worlds. I get my little pile of money and I can visit Jeff's house whenever I want and see the meteorite that I found in his shelf. It's, it's a pretty good, de- pretty good deal. That's very gracious of you, Steve. It's, it, I always laugh when, when you say that I'm one of your better customers. It's, it's great. There have certainly been instances where Steve and I have been in the field hunting together, and, and we've made a joint discovery, and, and Steve gets excited, and he goes, wow, this will be really good on the market. And I go, wow, that would look really good in my collection. And I have actually ended up purchasing um, Steve's share <laughs> in some finds that we've made so that they can reside in my permanent collection. But we're both very much engaged in the in the commerce of meteorites as, as well as research and discovery and and it, they sort of go hand in hand we need to we need to sell meteorites that we find in order to fund expeditions and it's also very important to us that if we make a significant discovery we make a portion of that discovery available to our colleagues in academia for research and study so it's a mix some science some adventure some commerce keeps the wheels turning this is Becca. I really have to ask, do you guys think that your show, since you've been on the air, is it helping you hunt or is it actually getting in the way of your meteorite hunting? That's a really good question. And I'd have to say it's a bit of both. We have received so many interesting emails and phone calls through our website, which is meteoritemen.com from people who have witnessed fireballs, who think they've discovered a new crater. And so we've received some leads for possible new discoveries. So that's on the positive side for us. And on the other, on the other side, we've actually met people and corresponded with people who have said, well, I've, I've seen the show, I've, seen, I've watched Meteorite Men on Science Channel, and it's made me want to go out and do this myself. And when we were in Wisconsin just recently hunting for meteorites from the, from the fireball, Steve met people who said they'd watched the show and it inspired them and they decided to come out and hunt for themselves. So uh, on one hand, we're making contact and on the other, we're generating our own competition. Why meteorites to begin with? What sort of started both of you on the fascination with these things? Was it purely scientific or was it uh, due to other reasons? For for me, I had picked up a book on uh, metal detecting and tre- treasure hunting with a handheld metal detector, and I, I got real interested in wanting to pursue that really from a hobby. Uh, most of the most of the treasure hunting books are they're pretty honest and let you know that it's almost impossible to make a living. And most of the people who do treasure hunting they they tend to want to hoard up everything they find anyway. So, you know, even if you find something, you they're not so prone to wanting to let go of it. And um, I ended up running across doing some research on some places to go hunt and ran across a story of a lady back in the 1890s uh, that had found a meteorite. And, and and for me, it was like, wow, the meteorites, they were worth money 100 years ago. They're probably worth money today. Um, and, and I think they've got metal in them, so it probably work as a, you know, a metal detector would detect them. And, it, you know, I quickly learned that because of the scientific nature of meteorites, that a lot of the data on where they were found has been recorded um, over the centuries even. And so you know where the fields are, you know the meteorites break up in a certain pattern, and, um, you know, if there were 23 meteorites found um, in, in one part of Iowa, for example, probably good chance there's a 24th or a 25th piece in that neighborhood from that same breakup. And so I started, I started following these leads and I started finding meteorites. And it was just really amazing. And um, 
I didn't go into it with a strong passion that me rights are the coolest thing in the universe. Um, I've, I've kind of grown to accept that fact now, but um, I think Jeff had a little bit, a little bit of an opposite uh, story on how he came to it. See, Steve is just a born treasure hunter. He was just destined to do this. For me, the the tab for meteorites was a, a culmination of interests in lots of other fields. I, I grew up uh, as a rock hound and a fossil collector when I was a little boy living in southern England, and I, I've been fascinated, fascinated by the space program for my entire life. I'm a huge science fiction fan. I'm an amateur astronomer. So all those different interests, meet in meteorites and there is definitely um, a meeting of the of the different scientific disciplines geology astronomy physics chemistry perhaps astrobiology as well a little bit of all of those fascinating topics wrapped up in the world of meteorites it was just meant to be for me i'll give you the question first and then a little bit of background and then the question again uh the question is are you crazy and and the middle part is uh, I remember, uh, oh, this is probably 30 years ago now, seeing a, a show that was always had you on the edge of your seat because in this case you knew somebody was probably going to die and it was called Danger UXB, Unexploded Bomb. Do you ever have a concern of the hazards of digging up stuff that you find that, uh, I mean, you don't ever get around areas where there might be unexploded ordnance and, and there's the, oh, yes, are, we are do. you crazy? <laughs> What an interesting question. I used to watch Danger UXB, great show, and I've always loved World War II movies, and especially the dramas that are involved in, in searching for and, and, and rendering safe unexploded bombs. And we have actually several times found military ammunition bombs, actually quite recently, late last year, when we were hunting at a secret site, we came across an unexploded warhead that was uh, the size of a small car on the surface. Whoa. And uh, we've many times found live ammunition from uh, aircraft. When we were filming the, the Tucson Ring Mystery episode of uh, Meteorite Men, we found a, a clip of, of live 9mm ammunition way the heck up there in the mountains can't really explain how I got there. So it, it is a hazard. It, it's not something that we encounter on a daily basis, but particularly when we're in areas where combat has occurred in the past, it's, um, it's something you need to keep in mind. And the other part of your question is, are we crazy? I think you have to be at least partially crazy to <laughs> embark upon a journey like this. The well, odds that... of finding meteorites are, are, are slim at best. And we, we do travel great distances and overcome hardships, and sometimes it's all for nothing. Well, all we come back with is sunburn and another story to add to the annals. And I will, will relate uh, briefly an amusing incident that happened to us in Kansas, although it wasn't amusing at the time. We were in the, in the Brenham, Kansas strewn field in Kiowa County, where Steve made his earth-shaking discovery a few years ago, the three-quarter ton meteorite. And we pulled several other pieces out of the ground from the same strewn field. And one day we were blasting across the prairie with the giant detector that Steve designed. We got a strong target, got out, started digging. And we were probably, I don't know, two, two and a half feet down into the Kansas farm soil. And suddenly the bottom of the hole that we were digging collapsed into nothingness. And there was a terrifying sort of gurgling, rushing sound that came up out of the blackness. And I have never jumped so far in my life. I must have jumped 10 feet back, and then I ran another 20 feet. <laughs> I didn't know if, uh, if we'd encountered the secret hidden entrance to the underworld or there was a monster coming out of this hole or what. And it turned out we had stumbled across an uncapped well, either an oil well or a water well. And uh, as we dug down, we, we reached a a layer of dirt that was covering the well and it all collapsed down into the hole. So if we'd been standing in the bottom of that hole when we were digging, as we do sometimes, we could have fallen down into that well. It was a sobering moment. Um, I think Jeff actually um, is more daring getting in some vehicles 
uh, where I'm behind controls, then we have to worry about, you know, what we're going to run into. So um, there's, there, there's, uh, there's always the um, different uh, indigenous uh, vipers and insects and whatnot. Uh, you know, sometimes you have some cattle or bulls or uh, neighborhood dogs that'll start chasing you, but uh, no matter no matter where we go, um, you know, Jeff has to uh, be on the lookout that I don't hurt myself or hurt him as well. And we have encountered uh, scorpions, rattlesnakes, bears, wild dogs. Um, I don't even know what else. Probably quite a few other uh, animals that would that would take us to task if we weren't if we weren't keeping an eye out on them. Not to mention a few uh, shady characters that we've met in some some out of the way places. What is the most surprising meteor wrong that you have ever found? Gee whiz, there, there there's always things that that will surprise us. Um, it, it's the things, you know, like for example, you, we were talking about the unexploded bombs. Uh, I, I ran across um, uh, a string of live uh, machine gun bullets. Uh, uh, Omani, Yemeni, Yemeni, Yemen and Oman border, where apparently they had some wars and battles in the early 70s, and I uh, was out there hunting the, the deserts of Oman with my wife several years ago, and but but that was actually kind of expected. But I don't know. I, I one of my favorite, I think, is this this ring. Um, for a bowl, uh, for a bull's nose ring that you can put in a bull's nose and, and, uh, it ties to it open. You can lead them around. And, uh, that was, that was really kind of uh, an unusual one that I found. We had an interesting experience a few years ago hunting in New Mexico at the Glorieta mountain meteorite site. And that, that's a rare palisite and it's not listed as a witnessed fall. In other words, meteorites were found by accident. Nobody actually saw a fireball and went to pick up pieces shortly after. But it's also the site of a significant Civil War battle. And when we were hunting there with metal detectors, we were on private land, so we had permission to dig. And I noticed that the level at which we were finding meteorites was the same level in which we were finding Civil War relics. And so we found mini balls and belt buckles and various bits and pieces. And I, I couldn't help but wonder if, if it was really a concurrent event that at some point during the Civil War, this big fireball had actually come over and dropped meteorites all over New Mexico. And if the troops thought for a moment if it was some sort of massive counterattack from the other side. Do you think that having people watch your show, both kids and adults, do you think that encourages... Uh, people to want to learn more about space and science and meteorites? Well, I certainly hope so. And we're very fortunate to have our show Meteorite Men on the Science Channel. It's, it's a fantastic network. And, and the president of Science Channel, Debbie Myers, is a great proponent of science education for kids. And I think we would all like to see the United States get back to the forefront of science and technological development and it's it's a, a position that this country held for many years and perhaps none such at this time so anything that we as a team and we as as part of of a great network can do to help further interest in science and science education is time well spent and one of the things that has really surprised me about the show, pleasantly, is that a great deal of the fan mail we receive is from children under the age of 10. And I, I wasn't really expecting that. I, I didn't realize that our work would appeal so much to youngsters. And all the time we receive emails saying, from parents saying, my kid loves your show, and we bought him a metal detector, and he's out in the yard digging up holes. And so inspiring the next generation to develop their own interest in science is is crucial and vital for the country and it's rewarding for us as well so we're we're very grateful to be with a network that feels the same way we do about those issues important issues have you ever wondered if there was a 
conspiracy where uh, people would contact you as to citing to have you dig up a plot that would be suspiciously the size of a spring garden? A spring garden? I didn't follow. A uh, just the beginning of the year planting for their vegetables oh, in, a, in a like a backyard garden. With, you know, well, with now a scare- there's an interesting idea. With the scarecrow think- set off to the side, <laughs> ready to set up when you're done. <laughs> yeah, and when you're done with the digging, could you just put these trees in the holes? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we haven't experienced that one yet. But we certainly have been contacted by people who had some pretty wacky theories. Um, that they were convinced they saw meteorites land in the middle of the night, or their great uncle saw a meteorite hit a barn and it was blowing hard and we've had people swear that they've discovered radioactive meteorites or meteorites that were made out of gold and platinum and, and those things just don't happen. So, yeah, we, we received some very interesting invitations and a lot of people are just genuinely keen to share their knowledge and we were all beginners once so we, we try to uh, treat everyone politely and graciously. But every now and then we, we get uh, we get some contact that is uh, a little strange, even by our standards. There have been some uh, UFO parallels recently. A couple of guys that were interested in UFO conspiracy theories, thinking they had some sort of UFO crash site. So I'll probably give that one a wide berth, just in case, just to be on the safe side. Well, hopefully you didn't give any of our listeners any ideas. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I may have just really put my foot in it there. <laughs> we'll probably get a huge stack of email after the podcast airs. Oh, yeah, we've I got a UFO not. crash site on our farm. You've got to come check it out. <laughs> How did the relationship with uh, the Science Channel start off with? And Jeff, I was in preparation for tonight. I was looking at an article that you had written, uh, I guess, for the Tucson Citizen, uh, entitled uh, "The Meteor." My- Meteorite Man, the end, of the, the end of the beginning, which I thought was kind of interesting. But you, you had talked about some of the challenges that also presented themselves when you got word that the uh, series is, had been picked up, where you had to go ahead and put together something like five shows in a matter of seven months. Um, what challenges did that really present, and how hard was that really to do? It was a it was a tremendous effort by everyone involved. And thank you, by the way, for reading my column. <laughs> when when the Meteorite Men project first began, it was at the instigation of our production company. So typically, the, the networks do not actually make their own shows. They will hire a production company to make a show that they're interested in. In our case, our production company contacted us. They'd, they'd read some articles about Steve and about our work and were interested in working with us on an ongoing basis. So... The first step was to make a short reel. They call it a demo reel. It was a five-minute short that the production company filmed for us, and that was presented to a number of networks, and science were interested, and they ordered a pilot. And the pilot aired in May of 2009 and did very well. And so at that time, they ordered a series of six episodes. Now, we had a fairly luxurious situation when we were working on the pilot because we had about a year and a half from that very first conversation with production until the pilot actually aired. We didn't have a strict production schedule. But when they ordered the first season of six one-hour episodes, we were told that we were going to be on the air in January of this year. So we actually had seven months to do six one-hour episodes as opposed to 15 months to do the first one-hour episode. And we really worked every day for six or seven months. And I don't mean five days a week, I mean every day. In in addition to the actual filming, Steve and I have to come up with the locations and and Steve's great with logistics, figuring out which equipment we need at each site and how we're going to get from Texas to Nevada with all of this equipment and so on. And then once the filming is over, there's still a great deal of work that needs to be done. We provide a lot of the photographs. We fact check the script to make sure they're accurate. So we're really intimately involved with the entire process of making these shows. And it, it, was, it was all-consuming. I've, I've never been so involved with anything in my life. And we're both very hard, both entrepreneurs. So work long hours if you, if you want to make it in this business. But 
I, I was amazed at the, the sheer amount of time that was required to produce these shows. And, and I think we worked hard. Our, our production company, and particularly our, our crew, worked harder than we did. We're, we're out in the boonies looking for meteorites, and they're running up and down hillsides carrying heavy, high-definition cameras filming what we're doing. So everybody we worked with was 110% into the show, and we were very fortunate to be in that situation. Uh, Steve, just a, a real quick question, too. This is in reference to the uh, find that you brought over to the Northeast Astronomy Forum and Telescope Show to us. Uh, I was there seeing, watching that, and I was quite enthralled by your discussion. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, new, that recent arrival, that uh, specific uh, item that uh, you, uh, you had uh, shown us? Yeah, the, the, the NEAF meeting was something that we had on schedule for, I don't know, three months or so. And um, Jeff was um, going to step an extensive amount of, of his merchandise that he has for sale. I was going to have some things there, and then we were going to, you know, meet and greet for, um, you know, both Saturday and Sunday, and then we were scheduled on Sunday evening, and then... Um, the uh, sky opened up a couple days ahead of time and dropped some rocks in Wisconsin. And you can schedule a lot of things, but witness calls you can't schedule. And you have to determine, okay, there's a lot of fireballs that come in. A lot of them will be even be bright. And you'll get a lot of reports, and there'll be some video footage of things. And, but that doesn't mean um, something has landed on the ground or if something may have landed on the ground, if it's in an area that's really hospitable to find something. And so there, there's kind of a each situation on, on a witness call. You're, you're trying to gather your information uh, to decide, are you going to pull the trigger and drop what you're doing and take off? And we had this impending event coming up, and but... <laughs> this was compelling enough that it was all right. You know, not only was this an opportunity to go find rocks, but it was an opportunity to actually turn it into um, an episode. And so um, I decided I'm going to go up for a couple days before Neef, and uh, and I got in the car and, and actually started driving as Jeff was driving to the airport. Uh, get on a plane to fly to, to New York. And so we decided to split our efforts, and I would go up and scout and do some looking. And Alan decided, yeah, I want to have some cameras there just in case this does prove to be good enough. And um, sure enough, I found a couple of rocks, and one of them I found the day before um, our scheduled speaking engagement. And so um, was able to uh, document recovering this rock, uh, which will, I'm pretty confident, end up in, in an episode one day. Um, but then I was able to pack up my stuff. And actually, I didn't pack up much at all. I left everything in Wisconsin, but um, packed up the rock that I found. Uh, flew to New York, got it in a car company, um, made it about 10 minutes late for, for the event, but was able to walk in that uh, pack hall of uh, uh, space enthusiasts, and I uh, get to show them the, the newest uh, delivery from outer space, which is really amazing. And it, a lot of feedback from people. Uh, it, it seemed that you know most of them were pretty forgiving that I wasn't able to leave the day before. And so um, I was traveling really light. It was easy for me to get on the airplane and fly back to Wisconsin. Just had to pack up all his stuff and send it with some of his his crew that helps him back to Arizona. Uh, meanwhile, he got on the plane with me, and we uh, headed back to Wisconsin to go find some more to hopefully find some more things. So it, it was one of those uh, interesting weeks that uh, had no idea. We, we thought it was full ahead of time. It really not packed full. Yeah. yeah, I never saw Steve travel so light. It was funny. Uh, he showed up at Neef blasted up the highway. I mean, he got up at 3 o'clock in the morning or something to, to drive to Madison, get on the plane, fly to New York, rent the car, drive up to the Astronomy Forum to present this rock that he just found the day before. It was an amazing moment. And I was waiting outside 
for him when he drove up and he just got out of the car with nothing. And I said, well, were it bags or whatever? And he goes, no, I've just got the rock in my pocket. That's it. <laughs> and on, on, on my way in to, to Neef, I was actually at the airport in Phoenix with my staff and we had, we shipped material out. We had meteorites for display and our banners and so on. And we were just about to get onto the plane and I got a phone call from Steve and he goes, I'm in the car on the way to Wisconsin. And I said, what? You're going after the fireball? And he goes, yeah, we're driving all night. And I said, what about Neef? And he goes, don't worry, you'll be fine. I'll, I'll try and find something and fly out and meet you there. So it was pretty exciting, actually. And uh, I think we, we really made the, the most of it. I didn't mind holding down the fort for him. It, it was a great moment when, when Steve walked into this room full of astronomy and science enthusiasts with a meteorite that had just landed on the Earth three days before. And that was priceless. And being one of those in the room, it was priceless to go ahead and, and being able to, to just have a moment with that particular uh, with that particular rock. It was uh, it was kind of kind of neat. You know, I'm, I'm looking at it. and I'm like, wow, welcome to Earth, there, little fella. You know, <laughs> well said. <laughs> I'm jealous. I actually had to do work and I couldn't be there for the actual presentation, but I really wish I could have been there for it. Hearing everybody's reactions and seeing all the pictures, it seemed like it was quite a discovery. Well, yeah, it was, was a lot of fun, moment. and yeah, it was it was great how it it all just kind of shuffled together like a deck of cards, and you, you don't always know how, how how that turns out. But um, we we ended up with I think some good drama up there, um, and we were able to honor our obligations. We we ended up going back to Wisconsin for a few days, and we were. Um, Jeff and I were booked back at Discovery's headquarters um, in uh, just outside of uh, Washington, D.C. later on in the week because it was bring your child to work day. And um, we felt it was, it was probably good that we actually honor our obligation to our employers. And um, so there were, I don't know, a little over 100 kids in the room there when we were doing a little uh, discussion on meteorite for them and got to meet. Uh, some people that help make uh, what what we do a reality as far as uh, ending up on television. Um, and then a couple of days later, we were back in the field again hunting more. So um, it's, it's a dull moment. And, um, you know, it's each, each expedition and each um, adventure has its own set of challenges. Um, its own set of excitement, and um, fortunately, we've been able to make a few episodes uh, so far that, that have turned out great, and um, and we'll just hopefully keep that string going for a long time in the future. By the way, for Bring Your uh, Child to Work Day, which meteorites did you bring as your children? <laughs> oh, good question. <laughs> we, we shipped out a big Campo del Cielo from Argentina, uh, a large iron meteorite that was first discovered in the 1500s. Um, we're, we're kind of attached to that one. And uh, it actually weighed almost as much as some of the children who were there for bringing kids <laughs> to, to work day. And don't you know that the youngsters, especially the boys, all wanted to see if they could lift it. And I was terrified that the big iron was going to end up on some little boy's foot, and then he would probably turn out to be the program director, and then we would all be in awful trouble. So we, we were very careful to keep it bolted to the table. Yeah, because actually at the Challenger Center where I work, we have a piece of the Campo di Cielo uh, meteorite as well, and it's the same thing with all the kids, because ours is uh, 136 pounds, and all of them are like, can we try lifting it? And we always joke around with them. We always joke around with them. If you can lift it and take it to your car, you can bring it home, and none of them can ever lift it. <laughs> I have certainly witnessed that. And it's so great when, when kids hold a an iron meteorite for the first time and you can see this wonder in their eyes and they and they almost always go wow it's so heavy uh-huh so i i love witnessing that moment it's really fantastic i was just gonna say that because i hand it off to them then they go oof and drop it almost toward the ground <laughs> it's, it's hysterical but it, it's so great to see their reaction to it indeed now if you guys could go back in time to any single meteorite event whether we whether it's confirmed or not if you could be there for any single meteorite fall which would you want to witness 
Oh, that's a good question. What do you think, Steve? Well, I, I've spent a lot of time at the, the Branham site in Kansas, and um, just the sheer tonnage of material that's been found over the last century or so really makes me wonder what it would have looked like, just, just because I spent so many hours hunting. Um, you know, I went want to be too close to the Sakota landfall, but that had to be an incredible one as well. I don't know. I, there's some historical ones that would have been kind of fun to go to. So, oh, my I my answer. You know. I, my answer is easy for for that question. In in April of 1803, there was a daytime stone meteorite shower over the small rural farming community of Legla in northern France, and Legla is French for the eagle. It's actually the name of the town. And prior to that point, the official position of the Roman Catholic Church was that meteorites actually didn't exist. The theory being that God had created the heavens, and the heavens were perfect, and so bits of the heavens couldn't possibly fall to earth because that would imply that God's creation was flawed. And this, this witnessed fall of April 1803 was so immense and so dramatic. Literally thousands of stones fell in the daytime while people were actually out working in the fields that there was no question after that. There were too many eyewitnesses. There were too many stones on the ground. And uh, a very prominent French physicist and scientist named Jean-Baptiste Biot went to the site and recovered numerous specimens. And that was perhaps the first meteorite event to change the world's consciousness. There, there was no going back after that. And I, I would love to be able to witness that pivotal moment in history when, when meteorites took the first step to actually um, become part of accepted scientific thought and understanding. What site thus far has presented you with the most challenges uh, in searching for, uh, for meteorites? Oh, I think this one we just did. <laughs> the, the Wisconsin Fireball was a, was a tough one. Actually, it wasn't, it wasn't the most difficult. The, the challenge that we faced with the Wisconsin hunt was so little material made it to Earth. And it, it was a significant fireball captured on camera and we were optimistic that there would be a lot of material on the ground, and there really was not. In fact, there was an incredibly small amount of material compared to other witnessed full fireball chases that, that we've been on. But in, in terms of, of, of overall drama, I, I think our, our 1997 expedition to the Atacama Desert in Chile was, uh, was probably the winner. Our, our truck got stuck in, in a place that's so remote, you, you guys will, will be familiar with this, it, it, it's where NASA tested the prototypes of the Mars rover, because okay. it's, the, it's the location on Earth that's most similar to the surface of Mars. And it, it's such a dry uh, and desolate desert that there's literally nothing out there. No cactus, no reptiles, no insects, nothing at all. And uh, we we did run into a, a few situations there where we had to dig the truck out um, hundreds of miles from civilization, which um, teaches you a good lesson for desert survival and planning. And ever since then, I think we've always carried just a little bit more, more water than we actually need. <laughs> yeah, and, and part of that trip also was a challenge. We wanted to visit the Montserrat Crater, and there's very few craters on Earth that also have remaining pieces of meteorite from the body that created the crater. Craters require a very large meteorite uh, to come in and, and to blast out a crater. Most, even the fairly large meteorites that land, um, will just punch a hole in the ground. Uh, small will just kind of bounce on the ground when they hit. Um, there's a big crater there, and there were some pieces of meteorite found, very few, less than a, two pounds have been found around this really good-sized crater. And we had the GPS uh, of where it was located. We've seen pictures. Other people have been there. And 
So we put in our GPS where we wanted to go, and we were able to get about five miles away from it. But there was this tremendously huge sheer cliff that I don't know, these three or four or five thousand feet high. I mean, it was just impossible to get to it. Our, our, you know, our truck was, you know, saying three miles to go, and there's the wall in front of us. And uh, we tried to find a way up there and could not. Um, I had tried my first expedition. Jeff accompanied me on the second one. And it wasn't until I returned by myself um, a year and a half later that all of a sudden I found a brand new road that had just been carved by a bulldozer um, right up to where the crater was. And um, so it, it, it was one of these things that had been frustrating for me um, for over a long period of time. And then all of a sudden um, I was able to get there. And, and so that was really for me. And um, Jeff got to see the pictures of it. But yeah, I'm still jealous about that. Back. And we're not the kind of guys that give up easily. And I think we spent two or three days on that expedition just trying to get to this crater. I mean, over wow. and over again, following these dirt roads, hiking, climbing. And we knew we were we were probably almost within rifle shot distance of it. We had pretty good intelligence, but we just could not find a way through. And oh, I, I look back at that as one of our very few failures. Oh, man, that must hurt. I'm going to get back there one day. I want to pitch my tent in the bottom of that crater floor and, and sleep in the bottom of a meteorite crater. That's one of my dreams. All right. <laughs> Which Steve has already done and reminds me, of course, frequently. How cool What are friends for? for? <laughs> I know. Well, the the truth is that is super cool. I am I'm more than a little envious that he's very determined. You're talking about how valuable certain falls are. And one of the biggest things I learned from your show and probably one of the first things I learned is that if it's a document fall, it's more valuable than anything else. So has there ever been a fall that you either of you personally has witnessed that you've then gone on to find a piece of it? Unfortunately, no. And this is one of the ironies of our work is we spend a lot of time interviewing people all over the planet who have witnessed these incredible fireballs and these, these literally earth-shaking meteorite events. And we're coming along afterwards. And you, you talk to these eyewitnesses and hear their stories, and these images are, are literally burned into their memory. From, from witnessing the, these extraordinary celestial events. And it, it's a little bit frustrating to, to hear the stories and, and see the excitement on their faces and go, yeah, it lit up the whole house, and the fireball went right over our heads, and we heard sonic booms, and the windows shook, and we've even visited houses where the windows have been broken by the sonic booms from meteorites falling. And so we've, of course, seen meteors, some spectacular ones, I think anyone who's a stargazer has, but we have yet to witness a fireball in real time and then go find pieces from it. That's a, that's something good to aspire to. Great question. I have another question on, uh, I'm realizing the value of history and, and firsthand reports, but do you ever hope for a heads up from the, uh, you know, I guess the intelligence community or the whoever the folks are that do the tracking of near-Earth objects and hope to, to get a report of something that's incoming that's not a Hollywood disaster movie, but just, uh, you know, here's, here's something that's coming in and it's not going to kill the planet. But uh, do you ever hope for that? Well, actually, this happened last year for the first time in history. And a friend and colleague of ours, Richard Kowalski, who, who's an astronomer and scientist here in Tucson, detected an incoming asteroid fragment. I believe it was the day before it landed, and they actually predicted with some accuracy where the fall zone was going to be. And um, it, 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 was, it was in Africa. And it turned out to be an extremely rare type of meteorite called a uralite that contains micro-diamonds. And you're all, you're all space experts. You know that the, the velocity at which potential meteoroids, meteorites, which we would call meteoroids, are, are traveling through space is extremely high. And so unless it was a very, very large object, we wouldn't have much of a heads up. But it was very exciting for us to realize that this actually can happen. 
and uh, Richard really deserves a lot of, of credit for, for being the first person ever to to achieve that, to, to spot an incoming meteoroid before it landed. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, since since uh, back when Babe Ruth uh, pointed to the center field wall and knocked one over, um, it's it's been that long before someone finally came along in, in our community and said, hey, this is where one's going to hit. Sure enough, they went out and picked up pieces of it. How is your celebrity life going? Do you ever walk around somewhere, walk down the streets, and then someone say, hey, you're one of the meteorite men? Well, it's, it's kind of funny. Jeff and I had a little a little wager going on who would be the first one to be noticed. And um, and, and I was fortunate enough, I guess fortunate enough, I, I was the first one uh, was, was the last uh, February coming back from our Tucson Jim and Mineral Show. So the the pilot had aired back in May, and then uh, the the show. But but I believe I was I was it was in Tulsa, and I think it was on on a Thursday afternoon. So the guy at the counter at the gas station had watched our show the night before, and um, and it's happened to me just a few other times. And so um, we're we're staying under the radar for now. I don't know if that that's you know good or bad. Um, yeah. I know um, he, it was asked earlier about, you know, are, are we creating more problems or good? But I know, I think there in Wisconsin, it ended up helping us out a little bit, you know, because we were we were with the Science Channel and we are here doing a show on the TV. You know, after a while, people knocking on the door saying, can we hunt on your ground for, for meteorites or did you see anything? You know, it's... It's a novelty the first couple times, but after 20 or 30 people knock on your door, you get tired of it. And so that tended to help there. Um, Jeff, I don't, you, you said your, your encounters mostly have been in airports? Well, I've had some very amusing um, being recognized in public uh, incidents. And I think my favorite was actually flying back from Nice. And I, I was on the plane um, on the way to Phoenix, and it was a long flight. And towards the end of the flight, I got off and I walked back to... Uh, to the galley to get a drink and was chatting with the flight attendants. There were three charming ladies there and they were all very jovial having a good time. And, and one of them just kept looking at me with her head sort of tilted, tilted. And, and then she goes, excuse me, but are you one of those two guys with the rocks and the big detector thing that you pull behind the truck? <laughs> and I said, yes, I am. And she goes, oh, I've been watching your show. It's my husband. We really love it. And so, then they gave me free drinks. They wouldn't let me pay for drinks. And so um, <laughs> that was a really nice bonus, actually. That definitely made the flight for me. Not a bad deal. And, of course, when we end up um, somewhere like at the Tucson Gym and Mental Show or at me for some places, you know, where we're going, um, there's a lot, a lot more people recognize who we are. And that's a lot of fun. Um, it, it, it's not worn out on me yet for people coming up saying, oh, I saw you on TV and I love the show. Um, you know, maybe after 20 million people do it, I'll, I'll want to, you know, be left alone. But uh, so far, the novelty of it, it's still there and still fun. And it's a pleasure to get the feedback, you know, and, and um, for someone to take the time to, to offer a compliment uh, uh, back to us for what we're doing, um, especially at this point where it, it really is uh, our ratings have been good. That's that's the ultimate compliment that we can get. Um, it's when people watch and then they turn around and come back and watch again and bring a few of their friends with them. Um, that that that's what really really counts. But uh, the personal face to face stuff is is still still rewarding, still fun. Okay, now I've got one last question for you, and that is. If anybody wants to find out more information about the show, about yourself, about your company, if they want to buy meteorites, if they want to watch the show, anything along those lines, any plugs that you want to give yourself, go right ahead. Oh, thank you. Well, we, we appreciate that. Uh, first, we'd like to say that Meteorite Men has been picked up for a second season, and we've already filmed one episode, and season two is expected to be on the air on the Science Channel in uh, late fall of this year. And in the meantime, we, ha we operate several websites. There's meteoritemen.com, of course, which uh, has showtimes and behind-the-scenes photos and all of that good stuff. And we are 
Meteorite Men on Facebook and Twitter. And anyone who's interested in staying in touch with us is very welcome to visit those sites. And Steve's very active um, selling meteorites on the Internet, and you can find him at stevearnoldmeteorites.com and on eBay. And my meteorite company is called Aerolite Meteorites, and that is aerolite.org. And aerolite is an archaic British word for meteorite. So, yeah, we're all over the web. Uh, also, there is um, at sciencechannel.com, which uh, links on over to Discovery's family of websites, has uh, some additional stuff from their site that's fun, too. And, of course, all of this information for our listeners will be in the show notes. Okay, well, Steve and Jeff, thank you once again very much for coming on Talking Space, and it was a pleasure to have you. Oh, really, our great pleasure. Keep up the great work. And uh, it was really nice to meet you at NEF. Really nice to be on the show. And uh, please keep in touch with us. We'd, uh, we'd love to come back and chat with you again in the future, maybe when Season 2 is airing. We'll have some new stories for you. Great. Not a problem. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. And all the best, Gene, Mark, and Rebecca. Thanks for being here with us. It was really a treat. Thank you. Thank you. This is pretty cool. <laughs> Thanks. Once again, Jeff and Steve, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you as well for joining us, Gene McCulka. Always a pleasure, Sawyer, and, and always uh, always an honor to be here. Indeed. Also, thank you very much, Mark Ratterman. I said it before, and i got to say it again. I love learning new stuff. Oh, you have to. And also, Rebecca Setzer, thank you. Well, thanks for giving me this opportunity. What a great group of people that I get to spend an evening talking to. Talking space, nonetheless. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for listening. Sorry about the terrible joke there. But, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. <laughs>